Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Today's podcast is presented by EPRA, the European Public Real Estate Association. Facing global megatrends like green transition and aging population, how will listed real estate contribute to a sustainable future and financial security for Europe? Hey everyone, welcome back to EU Confidential. I'm your host, Ryan Heath, the political editor at Politico Europe, and you're listening to the number one EU politics podcast. It's been a reasonably quiet week here in Brussels, as London and Washington DC slouch further towards their respective meltdowns. So we're going to keep it lighter this week on the podcast by talking about and to Netflix. Netflix, of course, is now a global digital storytelling phenomenon, and they've been making a big push into Europe planning 221 European projects, including 153 original shows in 2019. That has European broadcasters worried and European consumers delighted. It's also a level of ambition that doesn't come cheap. The company reported a negative cash flow of around 3 billion US dollars in 2018, and it has an even bigger overall debt. The company was also recently caught in a controversy of censoring its programming in Saudi Arabia. Just before that controversy, I spoke with the general counsel of Netflix, a man called David Hyman, who started with Netflix back in 2002 when it was a mail-order DVD service, if you remember back that far. We spoke at the Brussels launch of the Hookup Plan, which you might also see advertised as Plan Cour in French. For that event, Netflix shipped in the show's star and furniture for a luxury pop-up cinema and bar near the EU headquarters. I'm holed up here with you, David, in the Albert Hall, which is a little hall in Edebake that I previously knew as this ugly, out-of-date place. And Netflix has transformed it into this really cool cinema for the evening. And we've been watching a new series called Plan Cour, which is a French production, generously made available with English subtitles for the Bruxellois who don't speak French tonight. And you've got a bunch of new content out with Netflix across the continent this month. Run us through a bit about why you've brought this show to Brussels. I mean, really, we're trying to bring a little bit of the entertainment magic to life here in Brussels and giving people a little bit more of a feel about some of the shows that we're doing. And Plan Core is a great example. You know, it's a French rom-com. It's a friendship story about women in Paris. And it's a great example of the stuff that we're working on. And we really want people to sort of experience that and feel that. And uh, it's great for us. Yeah, to it felt pretty there. universal where I... Th- felt I can identify with these people. Like, I'm not a woman. I don't live in Paris, but I get it. Like, it cut through pretty well. Yeah, I mean, it's a little bit about the... And this is the thing about great stories. It really tells about a human interaction and human interrelationships. And what's really great, at least for me, about, you know, part of Netflix is being able to break down some of those barriers between the way in which people perceive others. 
So, David, I am a Netflix subscriber, so I'm laying that on the table straight away. But you actually are one of the originals with Netflix, helping to set up the office here in Europe before you've moved back uh, to San Francisco. Can you tell us a little bit about Netflix's evolution on the continent and where it's about to go next? Oh, sure. You know, and I'm even older than that. I've actually been around for almost 16 years with Netflix. I started when we were... That is not real. You were here for 16... Oh. 16 years. So it's changed a lot. On the continent in particular, I mean, we are starting to invest heavily in European works across the continent. I think this year alone, we're going to be producing over 120 original European works. And then next year, I think we're looking at something in the 200 range. So we really moved in the last few years to creating our own content and distributing it across the EU. And is that across all genres, or is it more focused in things like drama, comedy, and so on? It's across all genres. You know, we've got a group that's dealing with documentaries. We've got a group that's dealing with kids and family. We've got a group that's dealing with uh, young adult. We've got a group that's dealing with original film um, and series. And all of those folks are looking for great stories around Europe. Now, one of the things that I've loved about Netflix is the way it can kind of lift or elevate people who wouldn't maybe normally get a shot inside some other studio system or some other network environment. And my all-time gold example there is Nanette from Hannah Gadsby. I knew Hannah when she could barely scrape together a show at the Edinburgh Festival. And then to see her just explode globally like this, that, I mean, it must be a good feeling to be a part of that process. Oh, it's great. I mean, it's a fantastic service. I mean, it really is the first global television network. And we are able to create stars through that service. I mean, Hannah Gatsby is a great example, but there are a bunch of other ones that we've done. I mean, we're just working on a show in Wales called Sex Education, and that's a 24-year-old writer who's putting that together. I mean, a young, new, talented person that's bringing that to the fore. I mean, even Plan Core that you were watching tonight is really a, a relatively young cast, um, a young director. I mean, it's, it's really a diverse group of people that are being brought together. Now, the other thing that comes into my mind when I think about what Netflix is doing is that you're really, in a way, maybe it's not your goal, but it's your effect, is helping to create a kind of different European identity because you're connecting cultures, you're helping people experience things in other languages, and that's a really complicated task. How are you going about handling both multicultural and multilingual environment that just defeats so many people in Europe? I think it's, you know, the global service that we have, and it's really the first pan-European television networks, too. And we're able really to find great stories. And I think it really does start with finding great stories and then being able to tell those stories and have people have access to them. And so part of it is, obviously, it's relatively low-cost service so that the access to that service for a, a large swath of people across Europe is easy. Technologically, right, the, the advancement of the Internet. And then, of course, you know, the on-demand nature of the way the service works allows people to interact with that when and where they want and on what devices. So it's really a much more accessible service. And then I think what is the fantastic thing that we're seeing is, you know, through that technology, we're able to subtitle those 
great stories into 26 different languages right now. In Europe, we're also dubbing those in about eight different languages. And obviously, as the membership grows and more and more people in different countries arise, we'll be able to do more of that subtitling and dubbing. And so and is that a bit of a cultural thing? It feels like some countries want dubbing and some countries want subtitling. Or maybe you, you can actually offer it to both of them, to every country. Well, you know, that's the, the other beauty about the internet is you can go back and forth. I mean, you can subtitle it in whatever language you want and you can dub it in whatever language you want and you can sort of experiment and so it really makes it much more accessible and you're exactly right some people are used to seeing it in different ways like for example in Poland lecturing has really been you know kind of the way in which people have enjoyed their content and so sometimes it's what you're used to right and so we enable that but we also are enabling people to experience it in different ways when you ask somebody how they might want to enjoy the content, they may tell you something that might steer you in a different direction. But if you're willing to sort of experiment and when offer them different ways in which to access that content, I think you'll find that they'll sort of change. And what's really, I think, exciting about it in some way is you know, Europe in general has been, you know, content has traveled across borders and you've had to have access to that using subtitles. You know, American content coming over to Europe has always been subtitled or dubbed. But in the U.S., that market has really not really taken off very much. And I think we see an interesting opportunity to bring the great stories from Europe back to the United States. And we're seeing people pick that up. I mean, Casa de Papel, the Spanish original that we produced here, is getting great pickup outside of Europe, in the United States in particular. I think part of that is because of the dubbing. And that's only going to uh, continue because we're going to be working and putting a lot more money, time, and energy in making that even better. One of the other things that really struck me is that I think the EU was a bit afraid about not just Netflix, but the arrival of big American tech companies to kind of disrupt European cultural scenes. You know, that's been a, an old story and an old fear, and it has new ways that it comes to life. And I remember they were trying to set a target for originally produced European content. But I think actually in the end, you guys just beat the target. So it was intended as something that was going to try and drag people up, but you basically already started beating the target before it's come into existence. Does that sort of thing ever factor into how you go out and plan things in the future or you know, maybe you're proud of beating the target already. You know, we're really focused on making great content and great stories and investing heavily in the European content because there are great storytellers all across the continent. I mean, we've got projects going in France. We've got projects going in Italy. We've got projects going in Germany, Poland, and the UK, of course. And so, you know, we haven't set out to try to beat targets. We've really set out to try to find great storytellers. And there are just so many of them that we're finding it that something that we want to continue to grow. We do politics at Politico, so I guess one question would be, you know, I've watched shows like Chelsea Handler's show and, and stuff like that in the US, and we've got big elections coming up in 2019. Or in any case, there's national elections every year. Are you going to move into some political programming at some point? You know, I think we stay away from kind of the news and live and sort of current stuff. Because if you think about Netflix, I mean, one of the beauties about it is people can access that content when and where they want and at different times. And so, you know, a show like House of Cards, right, is still finding audiences today. And the more that it's kind of in the politico sense or if it's sports or it's kind of, you know, has a limited shelf life, I think that's less interest to us. Mm -hmm. 
And then I guess about anywhere, anytime, we've always had a lot of issues with copyright and being able to take content across borders in Europe. So I guess that's question number one. Question number two, will we ever get it in airplanes? You know, I feel like they should just junk their entertainment systems and just stick Netflix in them. Like, do you have the capacity to do those sort of bulk deals? So I'll answer your second question first, which is certain airlines do have the ability to have Netflix available on them. And I think as satellite technology will increase, you'll see more and more of that happening. And then with respect to your second question, I mean, Netflix, again, talking about it being this global service, really, we've been portable since we launched in all 190 countries two and a half years ago. Once you have a Netflix subscription, you can go anywhere and watch Netflix. And so in that sense, we do have portability. I mean, the library may differ a little bit between countries, but the more and more we're doing original programming, the more that catalog looks the same. Oh, because you have the copyright with the original content. So You know, we work, you know, kind of across all different aspects of the ecosystem. So sometimes we get the copyright, but sometimes we just license globally. We work on co-productions with people. So from that sense, we have the rights to distribute it globally, and we look to do that because we want our subscribers to be able to enjoy those stories. And then going back to your original thing, we're finding that those stories really do travel. And so it makes sense for us to be able to do that. David, thanks so much for joining us on EU Confidential. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Great meeting you. That was Netflix General Counsel David Hyman. Next up, the podcast panel. And now it is time to welcome back the podcast panel. First of all, the birthday celebrating Lena Abarus. Hi, Lena. Hi, Ryan. Thank you. And the non-birthday celebrating Alva Finn. Yeah, Lena is looking as youthful as ever. <laughs> Forever young. That's what we said on the birthday card. Without Botox yet. <laughs> mm. Yes. Keep yes. strong, Lena. Keep strong. We're going to kick off by talking about the European Commission's new homework that it's issued other European institutions and all of us as Europeans for the year. For us, this year uh, will be marked by three words, delivery, destiny, and democracy. Firstly, delivery. This is the Commission and the President's main focus right until our very last uh, day in office. Everything we said we would propose on our 10 priorities is now on the table, but around 240 uh, proposals still need to be adopted, and we have almost exactly 300 days to do it. It's decided that Europe is all about the 3Ds, 3D Europe, delivery, destiny, and democracy. And it seems one of the key problems, as explained by Margarita Skinas, is that Everyone just doesn't follow the Commission's instructions, and the Commission's done everything that it was supposed to do, and we're bad people, and we know people in bad institutions, and they've just got to get their act in order, and then the EU will finally be back on track. What did you think when you learned about 3D Europe? Actually, I retweeted it, because it was very interesting to see the 3D. I thought that they have just adopted a new 3D printing. Um, and uh, there was a lot of a 3, 3, 300, a 3D, and another 300. So the past five years, it sounds like it didn't count for the commission. And now they have to run for the coming 300 days in order to deliver everything that the commission has aspired for the past, since it was appointed. appointed. But here's well, my hopefully problem it with will it. be elected one day. Yeah, here's my problem with it. It's always all about them. You know, it's all about everyone having to react to them. 
and never a consideration that maybe if they'd constructed a different type of dialogue mm-hmm. or been inclusive in other ways or come up with proposals that were better in tune with what people wanted, then maybe they would have moved further forward with those proposals. Yeah, I think it can't be blamed for that. You know, the EU is so often we talk about it as if it's this freestanding institution, but actually it's all the member states together. We've all agreed to this type of democracy within Europe. So yeah, I I don't know if I agree with that. It is true that the Eurocrats definitely finger point and look down a little bit on some member states and maybe they don't talk to them in the most respectful way. That's true. But yeah, I don't know. I, I'm I mean, always well, divided by this by this strange way that we talk about the EU in Brussels as if, you know, it's one thing, but it's actually so many different things. I mean, yeah. Well, here is my question to both of you then, is if the other institutions went along with what the Commission said in these three Ds, and if people went out and voted, as is their destiny, according to the Commission, it sounds like mangled language, but also a bit of mangled thinking on top of the mangled language. Do you think the EU's problems are going to go away? Certainly not, because these problems didn't come overnight. These problems have been accumulated from one Commission to another. I think the EU needs to do like self-assessment, self-check. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, as you go to the doctor and you check, am I doing well? All my organs are functioning correctly together. And I don't think that the EU is still in this mindset to do it. Well, no, because the EU does subject itself to those doctor's checks. But euthanasia is never one of the options. Like you don't say, hang on, actually, we've got 5,000 too many people here. We don't need you anymore. And that's very sad for those 5,000 people, if that's the doctor's assessment that you've got to go. But sometimes for a healthy ecosystem or a healthy discussion, you need to have those radical options on the table. And the EU, while it might change the speed or the nature of its integration, just saying we need less people or we need less proposals or whatever is rarely one of the options. Even the massive effort in this commission to dial back the number of proposals, I mean, it hasn't cut it by 50% or 80%, like some people like to claim. Yeah, but I think if people come out to vote, one thing will be resolved, which is the at least some of the democratic deficit that the EU has. And that is true. And that more people, you would hope who would vote, would be more engaged in the idea of Europe and feel more European. So I think it's a solution to that problem, but it is not a solution to all of the rest of the problems that the EU is facing. And I don't know whether you're not, you were talking about 5,000 staff members, did you mm-hmm. mean? So like the bloated bureaucracy yeah, no, I that just we made have? That, or? I made that up. But what I'm saying is that there is almost no mechanism with which you can remove staff members. So how can you honestly look at the whole picture and say like, hang on, this is what we need to keep and this is what we don't need to keep, when it's automatically off the table, the idea that you might need to get rid of some people. Yeah. But, but Ryan, I, I don't think only it's the, the people that they work in the institutions. I think as well, it's the EU keeps bragging, and I'm talking from um, as a non-EU person, they always talk about the values. They communicate themselves about the values, whether internally or externally. And the member states are not similar. When we talk about if they can feel more European, would going and vote for the election make people more European, feel less European? I mean, a Spaniard is not a Czech or, or Lithuanian or, you know what I mean? What makes a European at the end of the day? Is this? Is but it this would at least connect you 
to the processes of Brussels? Well, for many, I think, member states, Brussels is the problem in their annual budgets. They look at Brussels as maybe giving them more liberty to for movement. But only richer member states would say that. Poorer member states gain more money from the EU than not, and the EU budget is a tiny percentage of Europe's overall economy. Like, we're really talking about 1% mm-hmm. of everything produced in Europe. It's, it's minuscule, actually. Well, it might be higher <laughs> on the proposal of the Commission. <laughs> no, but I do think if you were forced to go and vote for people who are European Parliament candidates, just by virtue of having done that, at least you're engaged in the process a little bit more. And I do think that wherever you're allowed to vote, you know, whenever I voted this year in Belgium in the local elections, did I feel like I was more connected to Belgium and that I had more of a say? Of course I did. And being... I think people are a bit disenfranchised from the whole process of the European Union by virtue of the fact that they don't know anything about the politics, they don't know anything about the people who represent them in Europe, and if that changes, I do think it would change something for Europe. Well, why don't we talk about one of those very famous and very long-standing representatives? It's the beginning of the end of an era for Elmar Brock, the father of the House in the European Parliament. He's been an MEP since 1980, a German Chancellor once famously suggested that Elmar basically was born and then became a member of the European Parliament, and that was his whole (laughs) life story. And he is very well known around town. He is the patron of Martin Selmayr, the very powerful European Commission Secretary General. He is known to have a very strong temper. We put him on the list of MEPs who are known for the wrong reasons last year when we published that list. I thought maybe this would be a chance to share any experiences or interactions the panel has had with Mr. Brock. Elmar Brock is a member of the European People's Party and the ruling Christian Democratic Union in Germany. And the reason why we're having this discussion is that he was rejected for being an MEP candidate from the regional list of his party on Monday night. And he's got one last chance to save his skin. But either way, we're nearing the end of Elmar Brock's career. Lena, what's your memory of Elmar Brock? (laughs) It was the only memory I have. He was at that time the president of the uh, Foreign Affairs Committee at the European Parliament, the EFFET. And it was interesting to see how the interaction, the attitude, the stereotypes, the very intense conviction of his own point of view. I have worked in many, I, many I, d- I don't have a clear sense of what happened. Are you saying that he was rude to somebody? Uh, let's say disrespectful and a behavior that uh, it was a little bit astonishing, especially at the, the position you, you hold and at the continent and the power you represent, and especially the, the parliament is the power of was the citizens. A, was it in a public setting or was he in some private meeting? You know, in Strasbourg, you have so many on the corner or aside meetings, and it was one of these meetings. So that was a very, for me, it, it, as, as a non-European, again, you look at Europe as like, wow, it's, it's amazing, and very let's say um, they have manners but um, I think it was it lacked a lot of manners there we did challenge Mr. Brock on this last year when we put out that list and he wrote back to me and he said well you know politics is a very passionate uh, environment and so yes of course our office is passionate but we definitely had a lot of reports of like what you're saying disrespectful behavior shouting at people sometimes throwing objects were the sort of complaints that we received from about Mr. Brock 
But he also responded, I think, in that email to you, this thing, yeah, that he had had an accident when he was younger and that people often say that he is asleep or something like that. That was was the allegation. And then he kind of, exp- that was an interesting. That humanized him. Yeah, it, it, it told you It was you interesting, yeah. And I, I did actually recently meet him. And it is true that. You- we, we should actually explain the struggle. Uh, he had cancer as a young man. And so that has, it affects his ability to keep those eyes open in long meetings, he says. Yeah, and I did meet him. And um, because I knew that, you know, it didn't shock me because he had already explained it to you. But he was definitely listening because at one stage he, he just kind of, you know, got very animated and said, but what about the Ebola crisis? You know, so he's a man I think that people consider as tough, particularly when he used to have the role as being the chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee in the European Parliament, I think he was considered to be very tough. And he was tough during that meeting, but he was still also knew what he was talking about. Not all MEPs are like that. In fact, but he most was born of them, an MEP. Most of them are not. Yeah, well, they, exactly. <laughs> Sometimes, you know, you go to them and they haven't read anything about yeah, yeah, the I file know. that you, they're meant to be talking to you about. Yeah. So it's spontaneously responding like that, you know, it was a more impressive meeting or at least he had a handle of things much better than most of the MEPs that I meet. He inspires great loyalty as well amongst former staff. You know, we received a lot of accusations about him, but very hard to to publish anything in that regard because there are also staff who are very, very loyal to him. So that needs to be said as well. What do we think about the experience and ageism issue that exists here? Mr. Brock is 72. He has been serving for the majority of his life, actually, as a member of the European Parliament. So a massive amount of organisational knowledge coming with that, but also at a time when you have people who lead countries at the age of 31. We have several leaders in their 30s in recent years in Europe alone, and Mr. Brock has been serving for 38 years in the European Parliament. So, So what do we think about that? Is it right to say, okay, someone else's turn? Well, I think it's democracy. You know, if you keep getting elected, then you must be doing something right. You know, so I don't. But it's not off a personal vote. It is within his own party. He's been getting re-elected, and then you're just sitting on a list. And you could be a piece of wood, and you'd still get elected if you're on that list. Yeah, I suppose it's a list system. Yeah, I was kind of more thinking about my own country, where we don't have this list, and you really vote for the person, and maybe the party. But I suppose that's democracy at work, you know. And if it needs to be changed, should it be that you do it on an age basis, or how long someone has been in there? I do believe that there are too many old men in their late 50s to 70s in politics and they take up too much space but then again I don't think they should be precluded either I just think more young people should be in politics as well and there should be more of a balance so I don't think people should be pushed out on the basis of age and experience the final word Lena on your birthday age is an important factor and I come from a region where when there's a leader they never want to leave uh, the position so you might have them even in their 80s or in certain uh, northern African countries now even with brutal health issues they still want to go and run for election so it's really not strange for me yet I truly do hope that there's a room for these amazing young Europeans that we're meeting on daily basis, that they have hopes to pull together Europe. And we have Alva here as, as one of these people that th- she always inspires us with, with this, I mean, at this firm personally. There we go. Lena is volunteering to be Alva's campaign manager for the European election. It will be an we honor. We will keep you It'll posted, folks. We will keep you <laughs> Sometimes posted. Sometimes I actually think it might be easier to just try and run as an MEP in Ireland. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. We can be the social affairs committee. How about that? Like, yeah. I think we'd be a very good social affairs committee down at Parliament. <laughs> All right. Well, 
Thank you both once again. That's all we've got time for on this episode of EU Confidential. If you haven't signed up as a subscriber, please do at politico.eu forward slash registration. We'll send you an email with the podcast each week, a summary of highlights and invitations to any podcast-related event. So thanks again. And as always, podcasting is a team effort. We couldn't have done this without Wei Dong Lin. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.